Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, what people say? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm sorry, I've actually gagged myself. Now, this is what we're going to talk about. This is probably the most alabarchist thing I've done. And that is uh, quite itself, quite the quite the base level for me to start from. You'll often see images of people who have on on front pages, ironically, of the Sunday Times magazine or the Daily Mail with like sellotape over their mouths or having gags themselves in the way I just did. And I think it's quite a good illustration of this whole discussion we're having today about free speech because they've voluntarily done it performatively and they can take it off whenever they want. And they're doing it on the front pages of mass circulation media outlets where they claim to be silenced. Being silenced these days is, or telling everyone you've been silenced, is the best possible avenue to start the I've been silenced tour. Maybe you could say, you could start the tour, I don't know, with a a front page on the Daily Mail, I've been silenced, followed by a follow-up op-ed in the Daily Telegraph about your horrendous silencing, followed by the Today programme, Newsnight, Question Time, um, a book, obviously the book deal with the title, I've Been Silenced. Uh, and then you can do your national I've Been Silenced tour all over the country where you tell thousands of people about your silencing. That is a debate we have constantly. I mean, we can parody it, but it is something that happens. Now, that's what we're talking to, talking about today. For those who are joining us uh, on uh watching it live welcome uh, for those listening to this on the podcast also welcome please do give us five stars helps get the word out but uh well thank you and subscribe to the podcast as well uh if you haven't what we're doing today is we're having a show dedicated to one of the big supposed debates of our time which is about the the declaration of war by the so-called woke left on free speech which has turned universities into places where free expression and free debate has been shut down by the, by an intolerant woke mob, necessitating government intervention with a free speech czar in order to enforce free speech on campuses across the country. Now, what we're going to do today is show the reality of this entirely false debate and about how the real threat to freedom of expression and free speech isn't actually coming from the left at all, but from the right, and yes, the government of the day that is in charge. It was illustrated quite well today by a tweet by Alistair Heath, who is the editor, I believe he's still the editor of the of the Sunday Telegraph. And, and in that he said, this is Alistair Heath, who is... Uh, the editor of the Sunday Telegraph. So he is a newspaper editor for a mass circulation broadsheet newspaper. And he said, the war and woke won't be won until it's no longer toxic to admit you're conservative. Now, dear, to the, to the audience watching, I might remind you in case you haven't noticed that we have a conservative government with an 80 seat majority 
and a press which overwhelmingly editorially supports the Conservative government and during general elections actively campaigns for the Conservative Party in the most partisan and overt way possible. And yet Conservatives still are presenting themselves, well, even more so than ever, as oppressed victims who are unable to say what they really think. And this is the debate on freedom of expression or free speech that we're having in this country. Uh, when people who say often very bigoted things about minorities who don't have a voice, you don't, you know, in terms of silencing trans politicians, you can't because there are no trans members of parliament or trans journalists. There are very, very few. Uh, and most of the, those that do exist on freelance uh, insecure contracts. And yet those who use their platforms to say bigoted things about minorities in repeating what much of the, the mainstream media says about those minorities, repeating bigotries and prejudices that are very widespread in society, which millions of people tragically happen to subscribe to. They claim that those opinions are the ones that are besieged, that people are intolerant of and are being silenced. And that has escalated, as I say, this week with the appointment of a so-called free speech czar, which is exceptionally ominous for reasons we're going to discuss in this program. Right. That's enough of that. Let us bring in the first two guests who we're very, very lucky to have. Bring in Gavin Titley, who is author uh, of the book, Is Free Speech Racist? We'll talk about that. And Sam Fowles, who is a barrister and also has recently written a very good article on the hysteria whipped up by the right on free speech. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Cheers. Thanks for having us. To kick off, right, let's just start from basics, because I think the way free speech is talked about is uh, there's this attempt to muddy the water about what free speech is in the first place. Uh, and often, for, you know, the right will equate the right to a platform with free speech, for example. So I just want to ask you both, let's do a pithy opening. How do you define what free speech and the right to free speech is? Who, who wants to start with that? Sam does. All right, Sam. <laughs> Oh, sorry, that's cowardly, by the way, Gavin. But fine, mm -hmm. you go. I feel like I've been over-platformed by by Gavin. Um, <laughs> I well, free speech is a legal concept. It's it's a right defined in the universe, uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. It's a right defined in the um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And all these things say the same thing, which is that um, the government should not punish you for expressing your opinion, but within re reasonable bounds. So there has never been a, a complete and unadulterated right to free free speech. It's always subject to what the reasonable bounds of, of society are. So for example, you can't use your free speech to encourage people to murder other people. Um, and if in court, what, what happens when you do a free speech case is the, uh, the court says, right, okay, I get that this this person has maybe been punished for what they said or not been allowed to say something. Um, but is what they said so far outside the bounds of, of reasonable, uh, re reasonable speech that there is a there's a legitimate social reason for for limiting it? Very, very pity. I love it. I love a pittiness. Gavin, go on. In you go. Um, can I be pity too? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'd like to just Try to compliment um, what Sam was talking about there in in legal terms, and to, to I mean to say a couple of things. I think you know we're going to be very critical of the way in which freedom of speech is currently interpreted and used and instrumentalized in political debate, but I think it's also 
important to acknowledge many of the reasons why people feel, you know, sort of attracted to and, 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 and emotionally invested in, in the defense of freedom of speech, no matter what way it's, it's spoken about. And that, you know, we, we, we are, none of us are far away from histories of, of people who have struggled for the right to freedom of speech in the service of, of, of opposing some form of oppression, for example. And also, I mean, when we speak, we, 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 we give some sort of expression to ourselves, to our subjectivity, to who we are. It's very central how we understand ourselves. So I suppose in the kind of broad, if to complement the, the, the legal start that we got from Sam with a more sort of, I suppose, philosophical understanding of freedom of speech, in the broad sort of liberal tradition, which gives us a lot of the language for the debates that we see in the UK and elsewhere, there are two ways of understanding the importance of freedom of speech. One is, is a kind of a, a moral good. It, it, is, it is an expression of our autonomy. We shouldn't be uh, coerced and we shouldn't be restricted by others. And then secondly, there's a kind of, often called instrumental or consequentialist set of ideas, which is that freedom of speech does good things. It helps us to improve democratic life. It helps us to progress the world of ideas. It helps us make scientific breakthroughs. It helps us reach greater understanding. It helps us in grand terms to approach the truth and so forth. So those are the kinds of ideas which underpin a lot of the, the value which is placed on freedom of speech. The problem is, of course, and we'll get into this, is that the way in which most people experience speech in their lives just doesn't look anything like that. Sam, you wrote a recent article uh, for politics.co.uk, I believe, and it was about why this is manufactured and false, this so-called free speech crisis. And it's interesting because there was, you know, you get right-wing think tanks like the Adam Smith Institute, which have really pushed this idea of a free speech crisis. They claim there's no platform in Peter Thatcher when, I mean, I'll, I'll let you actually talk about that because you mentioned it in the article. Yeah. But this review, so there's a review of 10,000 speaker events across the country. And of those 10,000 speaker events, six were canceled, four lacked the required paperwork, <laughs> one was a fraudster recruiting for a pyramid scheme, and another was Jeremy Corbyn. And in that case, his rally was just moved to a larger venue off campus to accommodate the number of people. So just, just talk us through this. Well, there's sort of, there's, there's two levels of kind of, well, lie, I suppose, in, involved in this, what I, I call the, the pseudo, pseudo free speech crisis. Um, yeah, on, so on the first level, um, it's lots of references to, uh, to events that uh, didn't happen at all or didn't happen in the way that, uh, that's been described. So you mentioned Peter Tatchell was supposedly cancelled or no platformed. Actually, what happened was the, um, a representative from the NUS who was going to speak on the same platform as him, privately emailed the the organizer of the event and said, look, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm just not, I'm just not going to come. Is that okay? And this was blown up to be, you know, Peter Tatchell being cancelled. Um, the government's uh, the, the government's proposals are based on a, a, poli a paper or a series of papers by by policy exchange, which again uh, cite an incident in uh, in Cardiff where Jermaine Greer was supposedly cancelled and prevented from speaking, and except she wasn't. The, the event went ahead, she rocked up, she did her chat, and um, some people protested, and, and that was that. So and I, I could go on and on about this and just take you through all of these different, uh, di different instances and why they're, why they're rubbish. Matthew Goodwin, one of the main sort of media commentators claiming to have been cancelled, when you actually drill down into... Uh, uh, to what was done to him, it amounts to essentially people quoting his own words back at him, and he, he didn't like that. Um, 
so you so th this one level is, is they're mostly made up and or distorted but it's really hard to go through and rebut all of those in in real time and so these kind of these ideas sort of spread and when they are um rebutted then it's never given, of course, the same prominence as, uh, as, as the original accusation. So that's, but then you get onto a second level, and that is that actually what we're talking about here isn't anything to do with, uh, well, I've been thinking about this, is it, is it anything to do with speech? It actually is to do with speech, but it's not the free speech of the person who has been cancelled. If I've got a platform, like, well, you've got a platform here, right? Let's use this as an example. This is the Owen Jones show. It's your show. You've put it together. You've organized it. You've done all the, um, all the research and all the production work. Without you putting, giving myself and Gavin a platform, we're not on, on YouTube right now. Um, it's, it's part of freedom of but you get to decide how your platform is used. You get to decide who goes on it. Um, if if I wanted my own platform, I, I could set up my own YouTube channel, I suppose, but I haven't. Um, so if you were to take take me off my, uh, your platform, that's nothing to do with my freedom of expression. You've just said, oh, well, fair enough, Sam, but I, I really fancy listening to Gavin for a bit. So just, you know, pipe down for a while or just or, or, or go off. Um, that's That's nothing to do with my freedom of expression. If, however... What happens is that the government comes in and says, Owen, right, you have to have Sam Fowles on your platform because we, the government, think Sam Fowles is great. Never happened, but whatever. Um, but we, we think the government is great. We think uh, and you have to have him on your platform. Then that will be the government dictating to you how you use your freedom of expression. And so what you have in, in sort of conflating speech with platform is the whole thing is reversed and people, we're now talking about how we force people to give their platform to uh, to opinions they consider offensive or racist or, or or just stupid and not worth talking about. And it's like, for example, if in the street someone had a megaphone and I asked to use the megaphone and I started bellowing all, all sorts of terrible nonsense or whatever, and then that person said, could I have my megaphone back, please? Uh, that's not infringing my right to freedom of speech. It's just I borrowed someone's megaphone, which doesn't belong to me. I mean, the point of Matthew Goodwin, by the way, I'm going to say this. I'm sure I'm now attacking. Is this me cancelling him? Or is that, Probably. I mean, Probably. Crit criticizing him is now attacking his freedom of speech. Yeah. Matthew Goodwin is famous. Um, well, he isn't famous, but he was known in, in the 2017 election because he said if Labour get to 40%, Oh no, 37%. He'd eat his book live in television, then was Wall Street his book live in television. Literally did that on Sky News. But um, uh, recently he's got himself, uh, he's claiming again his freedom of speech is being attacked because an email uh, which he sent to an academic who criticized him in open democracy, in which he threatened to sue the academic for things he'd said about him, was released. And Matthew Goodwin cited that as an example of how he was being bullied for his own opinion. <laughs> Yeah. I just can't even. I mean, Gavin, let's talk, let's talk about that. I mean, because of that, I mean, that that that's what they're doing. They put a lot of the time on there. They're conflating intentionally, the you know, essentially, a a brand of conservative thought uh, of uh, in 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 Britain and elsewhere. What they're doing is presenting the the right to say things, not just to say things on a platform, but not to be challenged. Is being equated 
with freedom of speech because when actually people exercise their right to say they disagree with them and to characterize their speech as they see fit, they then deem that as an attack on freedom of speech. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think it's 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 not very difficult to, to dig down into a lot of these exactly what Sam did there, which I think is very important. You know, to dig down into these sort of events that happen on campuses and suddenly take on this kind of mythic status. And when you actually look into what's happened, you inevitably you can see this in the U.S. as well. You know, where there's always been a lot of lazy journalism in the U.S. about U.S. campuses, which has taken up an even lazier journalism in the U.K. and Ireland and elsewhere which just recycles rumours that move further and further away from what were often very sort of complex and long and drawn out conflict. Uh, Sam, let's talk us through, talk us through what the government's proposal... Right, well, this is, there's been a, it's sort of exploded this week, but actually this has been going on for, and building for quite a long time. And it's, we're in this weird situation where what the government is, is, is proposing to do is, is protect free speech, and it's going to do that by expanding the power of the state to tell people what they can and can't say and who they can and can't give a platform to. And this, this kicked off in, uh, back in September when the, the government issued guidelines to, to schools saying uh, you're not permitted to use um, learning materials produced by any extreme organisations. And by extreme organisations, we mean a huge range of people, including anyone who who criticizes capitalism, um, which I mean, I'm not not a particular critic of capitalism, but it seems to me there are, you know, that's a pure that's that's not a particularly extreme thing to thing to say. And very slowly, the the government has been building up its control over what can and can't be said. And this is just the next stage in that. And so you've got the the free speech champion in the office for students who is going to um, essentially look into universities and decide if they're giving a sufficient number of, uh, of speaker slots to the uh, to, to people who, with, of whom the government approves. Um, this comes on the back of uh, ministers saying to universities, we're not going to give you any any COVID relief unless you're give, making sure you, you give a platform to people with whom we, uh, of whom we approve. And then on top of this, they're proposing a law that will allow people who have been no platformed or discriminated against by being criticised to sue the university that's, that's responsible for that. And this is weird in, in two ways. Firstly, that law actually already exists. It's called the Human Rights Act. And if someone discriminates you uh, against, discriminates against you or um, denies you your right to freedom of speech in some way, then you have a right to, to bring a claim against them under the Human Rights Act, except the government want to abolish the Human Rights Act. And so they're going to get rid of that, but put this new law in place, which allows people to essentially do the same thing. Um, but it, it seems very likely that it will be will be aimed at you know, uh, people who are perceived as racist or homophobic or transphobic who are not being given you know enough attention, enough enough privilege, essentially. Um, on top of this, the government they've have banned unconscious bias training in uh, um, uh, in the civil service, and th this also I think fits into a wider program of you know cuts to any sort of cultural or social sector that might might create oppositional criticism of the of, of the wider state and you subjects 
You see in universities subjects like humanities having their funding eliminated, arts, despite being a highly profitable sector, having its uh, public funding eliminated. And, and all, I think all of this is part of the same thing, which is that sectors that create criticism um, are, are being slowly choked off. And believe it or not, that's not actually people that are supporting this. And if you look at the, you mentioned the Adam Smith Institute report before, this is bearing in mind, the Adam Smith Institute's stated objective is to encourage small government, so not government in interference. Um, what they're proposing is that is ministers have the power to go and break up student unions, which do too much politicking in, in areas of, of which the government or the, the ASI, I suppose, disapprove. And so we're seeing this sort of pseudo crisis of freedom of speech being used for a massive expansion of, of state power and, and sort of state control of what you, you can and can't talk about. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns. There is a broader context, isn't there, which is the Thatcher government, as you wrote about, it strips universities of power to determine their funding, their funding handed, handed it, to it to ministers mm -hmm. and to officials. And the Cameron government, you wrote, eliminated funding for humanity. Since 2015, universities have been forced to crack down on political dissent. You gave examples. So actually, there is an onslaught against free speech on campus that isn't being discussed and that actually comes from the right. Yeah, very much so. And I, and I think this is actually part of that. This you're um in the, you know the the it's, it's I think it's so ironic that the the pseudo free speech advocates tend to tend to quote um George Orwell all the time without actually I think ever having read George Orwell. Um, but this is this is classic double speak. It's saying, you know, we're going to save free speech while actually doing the the total opposite. And the this this has been a I, I think a, a very long trend, and it it it, it play it plugs into other just a broader trend, I think. And and certainly, you know, my my involvement as a as a barrister in in the, this trend, I was uh, I was against 
the the prime minister in the prorogation case. I was against the prime minister in the uh, um, the Brexit debates, uh, the, the 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 Brexit extension case, and it's it ultimately comes down to the same thing, which is lots and lots of uh, attempts to expand the unaccountable power of the executive branch at the expense of every everyone else. And whereas with the with the prorogation, we were talking about expanding the that power at the expense of the elected parliament and the courts. In this, we're talking about expanding sort of soft power because universities and particularly students' unions, and this goes all the way back to, uh, um, to, to the 1980s and, and indeed beyond, tend to be uh, melting pots where, where people come up with I- ideas that, that challenge the, the status quo and, and, offer, and challenge the sitting government and challenge things like racial stereotypes, um, transphobic stereotypes, etc., et um, and these, as, as Kane said, every, uh, probably better than I'm about to say it, every politician is just saying something that some dusty academic said already. That was Keynes's words as a dusty academic. Um, but, and, and what the, what I think is, is happening and what I think this is part of is, is a broader attempt to control the generation of, of new ideas and the generation of new discourses and to ensure that those who are in a position to do so are friendly to the to the existing government and in uh, and and by contrast ensure that those who are not friendly to the existing government are, are not in a position to do so so you'll cut that the government is cutting down space in academia by cutting funding to the humanities by stopping universities deciding how funding is distributed and allowing civil servants to do it instead, by telling, um, recently telling uh, museums what they can and can't put on display, and if they do, if they, um, you know, if they if they put up displays that are not sufficiently celebratory of the of the British Empire, then they'll they'll have funding cuts, and um, you know, attacking the National Trust for doing research into. Um, the the, the le- links between their houses and, and slavery, and this is not as as it's portrayed, um, sort of ideological research. You know, attacking something. This is literally that what the National Trust was doing, for example, was literally finding out something about the history of their of their houses, um, and all of this is being eliminated. So you're cutting down space for debate that the government or discourse the government doesn't really like. And at the same time, they're saying, right, we've got our free speech czar, we've got our, our new non-human rights ability to, uh, to, to sue, sue universities. And this will make sure that, you, uh, that the universities give, give lots and lots of space to, um, to people that we like. Um, and so this way, you sort of, I suppose, tilt the balance and, and change the discourse and change the creation of new ideas. So that they're favourable to the government, and uh, and they they help a certain view of the way the state should be o- over the long term. So I think that was an extremely clear uh, uh, explanation. I think Gavin has been silenced by very bad technology, uh, which is I know because what you're saying was so important. So we will have him on another time. I don't think he can even hear us now. It's got even worse. We've been silenced, uh, <laughs> so now it must be extremely baffling for him. But thank you both for coming on. Uh, and I'm sorry to Gavin about the silencing technique that I've has been I've lost sound completely. <laughs> I know you have. 
I know. We've been WhatsApping. While Sam was speaking, me and Gavin were, whilst I was listening, I was also trying to sort that out. But thank you so, so much uh, for Sam for that very clear explanation. And thanks, Gavin, for bits we heard. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks for having us both on. I say this on, on behalf of us both, including Gavin, who can't talk. <laughs> thank you, Sam. I appreciate <laughs> it. So now next we have, um, we're very honoured uh, to have on the next guest because I'm, I'm I, th I think, a super fan. Yeah, I'm a super fan. That's embarrassing for her. Uh, let's bring in ne Nezri Malik, who is my colleague at the Guardian newspaper and also an incredible author, immediately by her book, We Need News Stories. Uh, she's an incredible writer uh, and one of, one of the best writers working in the British press. I mean, some would say it's a low bar, but she exceeds the low bar very well. Nezreen, hello. Hi, I bet you say that to all your guests. I, I genuinely don't. And anyway, even if I hide put the compliments for some, in this case, I mean it. So we'll just leave it at that. It's fine. I'll take it. Compliments are thin on the ground these days, being on the left and writing to the Guardian. You don't get, comp you don't get compliments very often. That's true, especially in our social media uh, feeds. So, Nezreen, there is a crisis of free speech in which right-wing opinions you can't even you can't even say right-wing things anymore without being silenced what do you think about that you can't even be a conservative uh, according to the telegraph today you can't be a conservative these days without uh, that being a toxic thing i mean look this is something that's been actually happening in the us for a very very long time um and one thing that's quite helpful is to see it as a repetition or a mimicking of the US playbook uh, that began in like the 1980s, really, in the academy, in universities, which were the only spaces that had, as your previous guest said, that had uh, a community of different identities, younger people who tend to kind of challenge the status quo. Um, and so they are the first targets. And there's a kind of mobilization against uh, progressive causes, social justice, racial justice, um, gender, LGBTQ issues, universities are the first target for conservative government. So it's it, they're not really having a brainwave. They're just copying something that worked very well in the US about 40 years ago. So in the current context, in the UK context, how ominous do you think the government's new plans are? And politically speaking, what do you think the aim is? What what are they trying to mobilise? So I think there's two things going on. So you've got kind of two levels of culture war happening in the UK at the moment. You've got kind of the propaganda end, which is silly cultural skirmishes about the flag, about British fish, the kind of Brexit-related propaganda culture war, which I think is just indulgence and frippery and distraction but there's a far more serious part of it it's kind of the front line of the culture wall which is very impactful and which has an agenda uh, which is to forestall the progress of uh, sort of social justice movements um, and the second thing is to kind of slowly make the environment more hostile towards them as well so it's a popular opinion changing exercise and it's very dangerous because the right has so many resources 
uh, in its hands. It's in government, it's overwhelmingly amplified in the media, and with a kind of sustained assault against Black Lives Matter, against students, against uh, trans or kind of gender-related issues, any, all the issues that are or belong or have a home on the left and that are designed or intend to promote equality are targeted at this kind of popular culture uh, stigmatization by the government. I think that's very, very dangerous because it does two things. It sets up uh, right-wing parties, conservative party for re-election uh, in the next election cycle. Um, and the second thing is it casts suspicion and doubt on all these movements with before they've even started. So before people even listen to what Black Lives Matter has to say, for example, they have heard and seen and read so many things about the movement being Marxist and being violent, that there is a kind of uh, a, a ready-made suspicion there. So not even in the long-term, in the short-term, it's very empowering of the right and very disempowering of the left. In terms of this whole discussion on who's being silenced, I mean, that point you made about the Daily Telegraph, uh, the Sunday Telegraph editor, so the editor of a national newspaper, uh, complaining about conservatives being silenced in a country in which there was an 80-seat conservative majority and most of the British press quite aggressively support the government uh, and have a very strong right-wing editorial line, the two biggest circulation papers in the country are The Sun and The Daily Mail, the biggest uh, circulation uh, broadsheet paper is the Telegraph. Um, uh, in terms of, if we look at the British media overall, the national media, the government's own statistics show it's the second most socially exclusive in the country. Uh, it's dominated by white men from very privileged backgrounds. Uh, that's what all the objective evidence shows. And people of colour are marginalized working class voices are marginalized we have a big constant moral panic about muslims there are very few muslim commentators with a platform i mean what does that tell us the fact that we constantly and and those who do speak out uh themselves are often on the receiving ends of threats which somehow never seem to make it into the entire discussion on on silencing what does it i mean what does all this tell us so it's very important for dominant forces to project themselves as weak. This is like one of the main things that um, happen when a certain political ideology becomes really powerful. The only way to sustain its power is to pretend that there is a kind of incipient assault or threat to it all the time. So whether, for example, with Brexit, when there, there was a, a vote where Brexit Brexiteers won, they had to frame their victory as fragile um, and, and prone to being overturned all the time because that's the only way they could maintain momentum behind it. So it's called, I call it victim claiming. So you, to, in order to maintain your dominance, you have to steal victimhood from people who have legitimate grievances and claim it as your own. So that's the only way really to maintain this sense of threat, to maintain the sense of um, uh, precarity is if you convince yourself, I think these people really believe it. I think these people who are, you know, sitting at the helm of extremely popular, widely circulating uh, newspapers really do believe that they are 
uh, in a minority because if they stop believing that then they get complacent so the only way to kind of keep creating a sense of moral panic keep creating a sense of threat keep people voting for you and buy your newspapers and kind of rushing towards what you have to sell is to tell them that their position is consistently under threat by people that are very weak that have no political capital that have no actual capital and so it's 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 a trick that's not just meant to undermine certain groups it's meant to maintain momentum and maintain support for right-wing causes because once you once you acknowledge that you have won then you create the space for people to start challenging you. It's a, it's a really fascinating phenomenon of the sore winner, the winner who acts like a sore loser, like Trumpism as well, I suppose. Exactly. I, I mean, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember back in 2019, I remember uh, demonstrations going on, I think it was against proging or something, and the far right had mobilised these, these demonstrations at the same time, and, and they were alternating chants of Boris, Boris, we love you, and... Um, and uh, shouting at uh, left-wing protesters um, uh, about hanging them on lampposts. And I just found that interesting because the left is often presented as a terrible threat and random posts, which are often obnoxious and rude sometimes, but are extrapolated to say, this is what the left's like. And yet you get far-right thugs, Tommy Robinson, coming out and saying he supported Boris Johnson. Far-right thugs, in those cases, are en masse, yelling, alternating chants of how much they love Boris Johnson, how they wish to hang uh, their their political uh, their political opponents. During the general election, there was a big story about a Tory advisor being punched by a Labour activist, and then the video came out and showed no such thing happened, but there was two Labour canvassers, both in their 70s, were beaten up. Uh, one of them a woman, cracked ribs. That wasn't part of this whole debate. I mean, it's interesting that, isn't it? You know, you get often, you know, rude, obnoxious posts by people on social media, and they're portrayed as these are a violent mob. And yet, when you get far-right types pledging their allegiance to Boris Johnson and, and saying explicitly, as Britain First did, when they encouraged people to join the Conservative Party, that they were going to go after the traitors who opposed Boris Johnson, who they called a nationalist, not part of the discussion. You see, it all, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a tedious point, but it all comes back to the media. It all comes back to the space people have to make these arguments. And if you have a media ecosystem that is overwhelmingly normalizing and minimizing the violence and the kind of racism and Islamophobia of the right and the far right, and I think the distinction between them is beginning really to uh, become difficult to discern, then these tropes and these ideas become very established in the mainstream psyche and they become very difficult to dislodge. And so you can make, you can state these facts, these sort of evidence and facts and details and figures and you know, numbers of hate crime, rising hate crime against minorities and compare it to what happens on the left. And it doesn't make any difference because you need enough people and enough outlets and an immediate ecosystem that marshals those facts into a narrative and projects them to voters and consumers on a day-to-day -day basis. And that doesn't happen. What you have instead, I did a quick search today for uh, my column this week on how many articles The Telegraph publishes about Black Lives Matter, even though Black Lives Matter protests ended eight months ago. And it's an average of four or five times a week, as if it's like the most current threat ever. When you have that level of 
like a fire hose basically of information that is um that brands left-wing causes as violent and does not do the same with right-wing figures or right-wing causes and you have maybe 99% of the media landscape doing that, then it's very, very hard to dislodge these, these narratives. And people, even when you, so even when you give them the evidence, that's just one little part of an entire diet they're consuming day in, day out. So it always comes back to the media, the volume of misinformation that goes out there, um, and also the political support and heft that is thrown behind the media by a government that's been in power for a decade now. Finally, what the right are doing very, what they've done very successfully amongst certain a, a large swathe of the population is to portray the left as intolerant, opposed to free speech. How do we, how do we make a clear coherent? I mean, often because free speech is in, in, intentionally distorted and twisted as to what it actually is. Uh, so, you know, the, there is not there is nothing in the UN Declaration of Human Rights that gives people the right to a Twitter account, for example. Uh, yes. I'm through that one. Uh, but, you know, the right to a platform and so on, or the right to say things without being challenged seems to be the definition of free speech that a lot of people on the right uh, have, have decided decided on. So how, do the left, how, do, how does the left make an argument which is, you know, to counteract this idea, which even though a lot of this is to do, as you say, with basically the balance of forces, if you yeah. have a media ecosystem which is dominated by the right, it doesn't matter how persuasive or factually based your arguments are, you're, you're at a colossal disadvantage. It's not about objective truths. It's about exactly. and you're, you, you're going to lose against, uh, you know, a, a much stronger force. But how do we make the arguments that for that when you know that 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 this isn't actually about onslaughts of free speech and actually it's the right with for example the government's new legislation on a free speech czar which is a very orwellian concept forcing people to platform uh, uh individuals against their will which is an attack on free association and independent organizations how do we make the arguments so this is an unpopular answer but we basically don't make the argument because most of the time when these arguments are deployed, they are done so cynically. I really doubt that people who talk about free speech in these absolutist terms really believe that that's what free speech is. It's kind of a cynical manipulation of the notion of free speech to guilt people into accepting uh, objectionable views. And I think we waste too much time raking over the technicalities, invoking enlightenment philosophers, trying to spell out like, what what's free speech what's not free speech and i think people know these technicalities and they're choosing to elide them to basically um uh, weaponize them for their own causes so the first thing is don't i don't think we should waste much time making the argument so people know what the argument is and the second thing is we shouldn't let them guilt us via the kind of moral shaming of free speech into chilling us into ceding our right to object. And I think that a, a very big danger in these kind of civility discourse and the free speech discourse is that we end up ceding space because we don't want to look unreasonable. We don't want to look like we're impolite, like we're uncivil, like we're anti-free speech. But we are at the, we are in a basically huge conflict, you know, a, a, a defining conflict between right and left-wing values at the moment and the right is dominant and what we need to do is basically enact and practice 
what we believe is free speech. And that includes, you know, being quite strident about no platforming, being uh, quite um, confident about speech that we just don't want to entertain and not then be distracted by all these kind of red herring conversations about what, what free speech is and what free speech isn't. I think most people know what free speech is. Um, and I think the purpose of the free speech argument is that we get bogged down in who's a good free speech person, who is a bad free speech person. While And while we do that, all the objectionable speech that we should be spending time, you know, objecting to, boycotting, no platforming, objecting to, uh, basically goes unchallenged. So I think the whole free speech argument, we've done it. We've been doing this for two, three years now. I think the arguments are clear. I think we should move on to doing the things that the right accuses us of doing all the time, which is shutting down free speech. Um, if we think it deserves to be shut down and we're not throwing anybody in jail or saying their rights, then go for it. I think less argument, more practice is the way forward. More practice. Love this. That's fantastic. <laughs> Lucy has been a very powerful counterweight and an unashamed counter. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? We're always in this defensive posture, which is the entire point of this entire discussion and debate. And what you're suggesting is to be a bit more proactive uh, and, and not force, not allow ourselves to be forced into a uh, defensive posture where we're, we're we're forced to trip over our own words to prove that we're not this menace that the right portrays us. That was fantastic. Uh, Nesri, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, as I've said, do buy her book. Uh, we need new stories and read her column in The Guardian, which is always always a little treat for me. When I see a new Nazarene Malik piece appear, I'm like... Maybe. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll read it. It's going to be great. Always is. Uh, thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon, but I really appreciate it. Thank you, Owen. It's really nice to speak to you. Lots of love. Uh, she's great. Um, next. Now, this is this is really interesting because, and, and horrifying, actually. It's really disturbing because when we talk about the actual threat which exists to freedom of speech on university campuses, this is the sort of discussion we don't hear. I'm going to bring in now Keir Milburn. Uh, Keir Milburn is a brilliant academic and also an author, by the way, of Generation Left. Everyone buy the book and read it. I'm just, this show half the time just becomes a forced book list, but it is a great, it's a great, very important book about how, uh, about uh, material circumstances married to progressive social values has made uh, millennials and uh, Generation Z. Uh, has has pushed them to the left in a way that is without historical precedent, but also is an academic at uni the University of Leicester. Hello, how are you doing, Keir? I'm doing okay, actually. Yeah, I've been enjoying the show. <laughs> Set it up nicely. We had a few we had a few technical hitches, but we got we got there. We clawed our way through to you and your and and to hear what's happened. And this is really important. Look, when you hear because we hear about this threat to freedom of speech on campus. Do you just want to tell us what's currently going on at the University of Leicester? Yeah, yeah, let me set the scene a little bit, right? Um, so uh, on Monday, the 18th of January, which is also Blue Monday, which is the, the most depressing day of the year. Uh, so the senior management at the University of Leicester chose that day to send an email informing 145 staff at the University of Leicester were at risk of of redundancy, right? Which is pretty callous in a in a pandemic, especially when everybody who works at universities were student faced and have been working absolutely ridiculous hours over the last year to try to cope with the pandemic. I work at the business school at the University of Leicester, so I'm going to focus in a little bit on, on, on myself, very selfish of me, but it's an interesting story, right? So there's 16 academics at the business school at University of Leicester, 
we've been told we're being targeted for redundancy. But but the interesting thing is we're, we're specifically being told we're, we're being targeted for redundancy because we do critical scholarship and or political economy, right? So one of my colleagues has been told by senior management that, that they were being targeted for, targeted for redundancy because they detected a tone in their work which was critical of mainstream management practices. How can you be a scholar in the field of management and not take a critical look at the at the field you're studying, right? Especially at the moment. I mean, do you think that um, that that uh, that um, management in the pandemic or the management of the pandemic should be beyond criticism? You know, it, it, it's ridiculous. I've also, I've also had a colleague who's been told by senior management that, that that it's not the research they've done in the past that's bit, that's put them in the frame for redundancy. It's suspicions about about um, the research they may do in the future. It's a future crime, sort of. It's, you know, it, it, it's preposterous, but it's really not funny, right? But I, I'm one of the 16. My, my livelihood is a, is a threat. Um, and, you know, it's an outrageous attack on, on academic freedom, right? Because academic freedom should be that, that scholars have the autonomy to do the research, follow where the search of knowledge takes them, basically. That's the point. That's how you create new knowledge, right? Uh, and it really is at the stage where if these redundancies go ahead, uh, Lester, you know, the precedent is set. You can just rip up academic freedom as far as UK universities, UK higher education is uh, is concerned. So, oh, look, that's bad, right? But that's the overt reason, because we do critical scholarship. We, we, we have a critical tone towards, towards mainstream management practices. That's the official story about why these 16 of us are getting targeted. There are theories going round that, in fact, this is a bit of union busting, right? Because out of those 16 academics at the threat of redundancy, eight of us are either elected union officials or departmental union reps, right? I I'm not going to draw any conclusion from that, Owen. You <laughs> and, your, and, your, and the viewers can draw their own conclusion about what, what might, be going on, might be going on there. Um, so that's my department. I think it's pretty outrageous. But like, the, 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 the redundancies around... The rest of the university are just as bad. So they're, they're, there's been a bit of a bit of a tension around the redundancies in the English department at, at Leicester uh, because there the, the redundancies were linked to, to to this idea that they they needed to make redundancies because they wanted to decolonize the curriculum. You know, as far as I'm aware, that makes no sense because the, the colleagues of, of mine who are being targeted for redundancy are very active in trying to widen the curriculum and, and decolonize the, the curriculum. Right. But like, uh, it's going to be no surprise that that sort of framing, right, has, has just drawn a huge amount of attention from the right wing press. It's just placed these academics slap bang in the middle of the culture war. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the level of abuse that has been directed at, at the people who've been threatened with redundancy, the, the amount of, of abuse on social media, it's been absolutely horrendous. It's just an absolute. Uh, abdication of care of those uh, uh, of those colleagues that uh, you know it really 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 outrageous i think and just to return back actually to uh to what gavin was saying earlier about 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 precarity and that's that's the, the fr frightening effect that has on, on academic freedom and free speech at universities um 150 casualized staff at the university were made redundant uh, last year at the beginning of of the of the pandemic um you know i've even had uh, 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 staff who are not threatened with redundancy at the at the School of Business have been warned about what they like or retweet on social media in relation to these redundancies. Now, this is, 
you know, you can imagine the, the atmosphere at University of Leicester is one of fear, suspicion, paranoia. That is not the atmosphere in which you have academic freedom and, and knowledge production, right? That's just, it, it, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I, I'd, I'd move on actually as well. <laughs> I mean, just to say like that, um, give a little bit of context to that because because what's going on at Leicester is just one of a, of a wave of redundancies going around the country that, and they're happening at the, at the moment. Um, you know, uh, and that leads us to say, why? Why are these all happening at the moment? Of course, the pandemic sets the, sets the, the, the sort of background to that. But beyond that, you know, you'd have to sort of say, this is not an accident. This is sort of the outcome of government policy and government policy going back quite a long way, actually, right? And I, I think it's, the story goes a little bit like this. Higher education is turned into a market. You have to sell yourself. So what happens as soon as that happened, uh, uh, that, that's brought in is there's been a huge wave of building across universities because you want nice, shiny buildings that look nice in a university prospectus, or you want to build uh, a university accommodation because, you know, uh, the rents from students are a valuable source of income. How do you pay for those buildings? You take out loans, you securitize those loans, you, 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 you offer the, the, the future income streams from rents uh, to securitize those loans. And the more loans you take out, the more vulnerable universities are to a decline in student numbers. Right? And I think that's, that's part of this, this, the reason why what we're seeing is, is this sort of universities leading towards offering a very conservative standardized sort of curriculum. Then, and as Sam was saying earlier, Sam and Gavin, actually, you know, you have the elimination of, of, of funding for the humanities, right? And you know, the space for critical thinking within university gets shut down, partly by government policy, but also this background of the fact that, 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 that the universities are being financialized uh, and put really at risk about, about um, the student numbers declining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Actually, that, that's an important point, right? Because because I think students are also getting a raw dealing that in this, and that's the other side of this. So this 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 idea that that universities are, uh, 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 really need to pay off their loans, they they you know they need to 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 make sure that they they don't uh, break their covenants around these loans. So you know earlier in the year when the, with the pandemic, you'd look around, you notice that universities were very very keen on offering face to face teaching despite the risks involved basically you know and we can see the logic of that we need to get students to come to, to, to campus so that they take up their accommodation and then we get the money apparently apparently a billion pounds worth of rent has been spent by students who haven't been able to take up their accommodation through the pandemic i mean that's the other side of it and in fact look you know there's a big wave of rent strikes going around universities right? so Gavin, i mean what you're talking about is i mean it just illustrates the hypocrisy of this whole debate and 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 actually the genuine threat to academic inquiry and free speech that's actually taking place at universities and what's happening to you is horrendous and you require support and solidarity so what actively do you think what how does this feed into i mean what firstly can people do to support you and, and your and your colleagues but also in the wider political sense how does this feed into the sort of demands that the left need to be making yeah um well that's the reason i raised the student rent strikes <laughs> like basically what the student rent strikes and these wave of, of, of um the wave of redundancies they're both sides of this of the fact that there's this totally broken model 
of higher education in the UK is totally broken. And it is partly the government's fault because the government has just offered no, none of the support that's offered to other sectors of the economy, basically. Um, and you know, you know, have to think that it, it, that really does fit into like the whole cultural, the culture war hostility that you've been talking about. Uh, it sort of fits into my my, the, my work you were talking about earlier around um, around Generation Left, really about you know, in, in the conservative mind, the reason that young people are going to university, um, uh, no, the reason the young people are, 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 are tending to, to to turn to the left is because they're getting brainwashed at universities. That's just not the case. <laughs> young people are, got move, are moving to the left because their material prospects and their material living standards are taking an absolute no, nosedive. So these things are all all linked up. So what the things that the things that the left and and and, and basically just people who care about um, academic freedom and about universities and about education, the thing they should do is support the student rent strike. The thing they should do is support the 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 the, the lecturers who are face facing redundancy, and so. We're, we're at, at, at Leicester, we're just sending out consultative ballots around um, about going on strike on this issue. Uh, anybody, any of my uh, colleagues at Leicester, I'd, I'd urge you to, to vote in favour of those strikes because that's the only thing that, uh, that senior management will listen to. So we have to struggle within universities and try to alter the balance of, of power because what goes along with this, with this sort of financialization is this, this sort of dictatorial top-down a uh, 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 form of management. You know, universities used to be a college of, of academics, and which would be self-managing. That's that. You know, you can see it at the University of Leicester that the academic representation in in, in the sort of governing councils uh, uh, have been sort of edged out a, a little bit. So we need to struggle about within universities, I think, but we also have to struggle on the on the level of 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 the government and, and general policy. You know, the government. Could have solved this straight away by giving some of the support that they gave to other sectors of course uh, uh but we also need to you know it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a big ask of your viewers but basically we need a completely different model for, of higher education uh in in this country a different model of, of how it's governed a different model of how it's financed and different model about of what education is all about and the role it can play in society i mean you just I think summed that up very, very eloquently. And this, this is the sort, these are the sorts of struggles and battles which are not unsurprisingly being platformed by mainstream media outlets as we hear uh, a growing moral panic uh, about essentially the fact, let's be honest with you, that for the reasons your book, Generation Left, goes into, for material reasons, people under the, 40, under the age of 40 their lived experiences and right-wing ideology are on a collision course. That's not because they're being brainwashed. It's not because of peer pressure. It's not because they're not being exposed to a wide variety of opinions in a country run by the Conservatives with a largely Conservative media. It's it's simply because of their material circumstances. And uh, and and the this assault we see at the universities is partly obviously ideological, but it comes from a a form of right-wing insecurity as well, which is although they have a huge majority of support there are exceptions obviously there are older people who are very much on the left but they do objectively have an old, a large majority amongst the older britons that the evidence shows that uh you know in 1983 when thatcher won a landslide young people voted for her she she had a lead amongst younger people so there, and, and, and the evidence suggests that actually as people get older, it's not that they become more right-wing. I mean, 1968, the most pro-Vietnam War generation in America were the under-25s. The most anti-Vietnam War generation were older Americans in the mid-80s, the most pro-Reagan 
for a period with a young. Uh, and obviously now that's not the case with American young people. A lot of them are powered Bernie Sanders. But that's what we're seeing, isn't it? It's partly uh, a culture war thing, but it is actually partly a sense of, oh my word, these people are getting older and actually the evidence doesn't suggest they necessarily become more right-wing at all and the material reasons suggest they're not. So what we're going to do is we're going to try we're going to try and cleanse the universities of, of, of the causes of why they're being brainwashed when actually that isn't the case at all. It's the conditions in which they live. And in the midst of all that, the actual threats to academic freedom, like what you're going through, are ignored. And that's why this is so important and that's why people need to support you, to support the student strikes. Um, and and to and to also read your book generation left which uh, is a fantastic exposition list but seriously care i really appreciate it and uh, certainly i'll be doing everything i can to support you and i hope people watching or listening to this uh, will 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 stand alongside you as well because it's a, a critical battle thanks very much john i really appreciate it cheers care i'll speak to you soon um Thank you so much, everyone, for watching it, wherever you watched it, even though I can't force you to watch it on YouTube because you keep watching it on Facebook. Uh, but that's my own fault. I put it on Facebook. I just try and bully people to click on the link with mixed success. But nonetheless, wherever you watch this, thank you. For those listening to it on the podcast, thank you as well. Uh, and to support us uh, as we expand uh, in terms of the videos and also the podcast, uh, please subscribe on YouTube, press the notifications bell, like the video, quite a bit of homework. No, I mean, this takes seconds, but it helps a lot. Uh, please go to the podcast and uh, subscribe. Give us cheeky five star if you're up for that. On Patreon, thank you so much as ever, everyone supporting us there and helping decide the videos, polemics, interviews that we do on the on the channel, on the podcast, um, on patreon.com forward slash dungeons84. Really appreciate it. Sorry about the tech issues before. These things happen because... For, well, partly because we have a catastrophic broadband situation in this country and the Labour Party did have a suggestion for how to fix that. Didn't happen though, did it? So now we have to now we have to pick up the pieces and that happens to be occasionally disrupted videos and podcasts by technical hitches. But we worked through it and everyone was fantastic and I, I, I learned a lot and I hope you all did as well. I know some will go, well, where was the right-wing voices? I do actually interview right-wing voices occasionally on this channel. Uh, but I would say this conversation and debate has been monopolized by the right in the media, in politics. Uh, and I think it's about time to balance it out. And that's what we try to do here, to show the so-called assault on free speech by the left isn't based in the evidence, but there is a threat to free speech coming from the actual government, the people with power. Those are the people in charge uh, and the fact they pretend to be besieged and under threat, and somehow it's the left who are in charge, that they use that as a justification to try and even further marginalise progressive and left voices. And that has to be fought back. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the huge wisdom that we had today. We will be back on Sunday, uh, and I will announce shortly what is, who the guests will be. Um, but I think we're going to have a really important discussion on Sunday at 5 o'clock. So please do join us then. Thank you, everybody, as ever. We got through this. It was a really interesting discussion. Uh, and I will see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.